Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast, Episode 142, Aaron Sheely, the Dignitary Confrontation Clause. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Alex Nunn, from the University of Arkansas School of Law. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence and proof. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. Joining me on Excited Utterance today is Aaron Sheely, a professor of law at California Western School of Law in San Diego. Aaron's joining me on the podcast to discuss her most recent paper, entitled The Dignitary Confrontation Clause, which is forthcoming in the Washington Law Review. And as you'll hear today, Aaron's paper takes a comprehensive look at the Confrontation Clause. It traces the historical roots of the confrontation right. From there, Aaron's paper turns to modern case law. She examines the Supreme Court's seminal decision in Crawford v. Washington and analyzes the shortcomings of Confrontation Clause jurisprudence in our modern era. Finally, as you'll hear in our discussion, Aaron provides a reconceptualization of the confrontation right, advocating in favor of a dignitary confrontation clause that can lead to a more fair, more administrable system of justice. I really enjoyed speaking with Aaron about the confrontation clause. I learned a lot, and I hope that you enjoy our conversation as well. Aaron, welcome to Excited Utterance. Thank you for having me. So our focus today is the Confrontation Clause, which, of course, is always a fascinating topic. But before we get into anything too substantive today, I actually want to begin just with a preliminary note. I'm curious, Erin, what led you to focus on confrontation with this paper? So it's actually kind of funny, Alex. I am really a criminal law scholar, first and foremost. I've been teaching evidence almost since the beginning of my career, but I'd never really written in evidence before. So I came to the confrontation clause mostly because I had taught it so many times. And each time I taught it, I thought sooner or later, the courts are going to fix this. Like, this is a hot mess. Sooner or later, I'm going to have an easier time teaching this to my students. And they just never fixed it. So that made me start thinking about it and wanting to find a way to fix it myself. Well, you bring some incredible insight, certainly, to the confrontation clause. But I want to begin unpacking it on the podcast by first laying some groundwork or a baseline on the Confrontation Clause to build up to your contribution, if you will. So first, let's look historically. Let's look into the past. Aaron, where do we find the roots of a right to confrontation? So many would say that the original roots actually date back to the treason trial of Sir Walter Raleigh back in the 1600s. The actual text, the U.S. constitutional text of the Confrontation Clause probably can be traced back to the founders' real disgust with the ways in which the British Crown enforced the Stamp Act. So the Stamp Act, as probably most of your readers know, was a colonial-era law that essentially required that printed material the colonists wanted to sell had to be printed on paper that was taxed and bore a stamp authorizing its use by the Crown. So this got a lot of merchants in trouble who wanted to sell things that they did not pay this tax for. And the Crown adopted a set of procedures for enforcing the Stamp Act that essentially deprived these merchants of the right to confrontation. They were prosecuted under admiralty law and admiralty court. 
And one of the procedural features of this type of trial was that the Crown was allowed to introduce what were called ex parte depositions. These are interviews conducted by the prosecutorial authority away from the courtroom and then just using the testimony of these outside speakers to convict people under the Stamp Act without giving them the opportunity to cross-examine them. And so the founders thought this was terribly bad behavior. George Mason sort of famously described it as creating an odious distinction between British citizens in the UK proper and the colonists who were subject to these particular procedures. So that's, I think, really where the origins of the Sixth Amendment itself came from. They didn't want this type of process to occur. Perfect. And that history, of course, all leads, as you mentioned, to the enshrinement of the Confrontation Clause. I want to fast forward ever so slightly now to more recent history, because at least for the last two decades, it seems, of course, the Supreme Court case Crawford v. Washington has really controlled the application, the applicability of the Confrontation Clause. So tell us about that case, Crawford v. Washington. So to understand the watershed moment that Crawford created, you have to understand that basically throughout the whole history from the founding up until 2004 when Crawford was decided, courts sort of just viewed the confrontation right under the Sixth Amendment to be met by the hearsay rules. So obviously, assuming all of your podcast listeners are very familiar with the rule against hearsay that prevents outside statements from being introduced in court unless they fall into one of five million different exceptions. And generally, the hearsay rules turn on, well, is this particular outside of court statement going to be really accurate? And is it particularly necessary to the trial? And so those are kind of the two values that the hearsay rules really protect. And all anything that comes in through a hearsay exception generally comes in because it's considered uh, particularly accurate, despite being made out of court, and or particularly necessary. So for a long time, up until 2004, the Supreme Court and lower courts just held, all right, if it meets a hearsay exception, then it's also going to be okay under the Confrontation Clause. It's also going to be deemed to be an appropriate exception to the defendant's right to confront witnesses against them. What Crawford did was essentially to decouple the accuracy analysis that runs through hearsay law from a different type of analysis that the court described as whether a statement is testimonial or not. The issue being, was it a statement that was made outside of court for the purposes of producing evidence against a criminal defendant? And if the answer to that second question is yes, doesn't matter how accurate the statement was, doesn't matter whether it falls into a hearsay exception, that criminal defendant has a right to cross-examine the outside declarant. So this really just blew apart confrontation clause analysis because at least in criminal cases where the hearsay statement is being used against a criminal defendant, it required that the court go through a separate analysis as to whether a statement that might meet a hearsay exception was nonetheless testimonial. And so this plunged the world into confusion and chaos from 2004 onwards. Yeah, I want to pick up on that thread because I think it's safe to say that despite its lofty and perhaps noble goals, Crawford has certainly led to some significant problems in a number of contexts. And one example that you identify really effectively in your paper is domestic violence cases. 
So talk to us about that. What issue with Crawford arises in the context of domestic violence cases? Yeah, so domestic violence cases, unfortunately, often pose some pragmatic challenges for prosecutors. And this is simply because in domestic violence cases, you often have a victim who has changed their mind about whether they want to testify. So you have someone who calls the police, gives a statement about violence that's been perpetrated by their partner, but then between the incident and trial, the victim has gone back to the person, doesn't want to testify. So in cases like that, prosecutors will often rely on the original statement made to the police officer or to a 911 dispatcher. Often these are obviously out-of-court statements, but often they meet excited utterance, exceptions to the hearsay rule, present sense exceptions. There's lots of ways that statements made by a distressed victim close to the events that they're describing can come in through hearsay. So what Crawford did was basically to say, nope, if it was a testimonial statement made to a police officer, you can't get it in even if it meets one of these hearsay exceptions. So this would come up a lot in domestic violence cases. Now, the case law, which followed almost immediately after Crawford as the Supreme Court tried to give further guidance on the new world it had created. One of the major developments in cases like this was to create the so-called primary purpose test. And the primary purpose test basically just asked the court to decide when the speaker made the statement, was their primary purpose to create some kind of record for trial which would render it testimonial and therefore in violation of the confrontation clause, or was it to resolve an ongoing emergency? So you immediately in these domestic violence types of cases had a split between contexts where a victim is calling 911, seeking help in alleviating a dangerous situation as it's unfolding. The Supreme Court said that is okay, that's not testimonial, that is a statement where the speaker's primary purpose was to resolve an ongoing emergency. However, if it's more after the fact, if the police officer reports to the scene, things are calm, the victim is describing things that happened in the past for the purposes of seeking prosecution of the perpetrator, that would qualify as testimonial and would not come in. It's not just domestic violence cases, of course, where this happens. Basically, any kind of situation of violence where there's a possibility that the speaker is not just trying to give evidence that will be used in trial, but is trying to seek help to resolve something that's going on in real time. Now, the last little wrinkle to that is that that distinction was, I would say, internally coherent. That was It was a workable distinction. But it was, of course, limiting the types of statements that prosecutors could use, which was causing some consternation. So we ended up a few years later, I believe in 2011, with yet another confrontation clause case, Michigan v. Bryant. This was written by a different majority. Crawford was a Scalia opinion. Bryant was a Sotomayor opinion. And in Bryant, the court backpedaled a little bit on this testimonial is all that matters rule created by Crawford. Crawford had said, we don't care about accuracy. All we care about is whether the statement was testimonial. It's testimonial if the primary purpose is to give evidence for trial. In Michigan v. Bryan, the court backpedaled a little bit and said, well, accuracy can still be a factor. We still care about that a little bit. Brian involved a case where the victim was dying, help was already on the way, 
the ambulance was already on the way. And so the police officer was questioning him about who had shot him, which obviously the purpose of this questioning was to get information for prosecution. Um, And the court actually held that to not count as testimonial by looking at the fact that, well, the police officer might have thought there was an ongoing emergency. There's a guy with a gun out there and so forth. And also it was probably pretty accurate because he would have no reason to lie. It basically just muddied the waters really heavily in this category of cases involving kind of urgent statements to law enforcement. So kind of unclear after Bryant exactly how to apply this primary purpose test that was developed in these domestic violence cases. Aaron, I also want to look beyond cases involving urgency or cases involving violence to other contexts. Are there other contexts where Crawford has also had a somewhat confusing effect on the application of the Confrontation Clause? Yes, definitely. As confusing as everything I just described may be, the universe of cases involving the reports of crime lab technicians is even more confusing. In fact, as I give this little review of case law, I have in my mind the blank, confused, and sometimes angry expressions on my students when I try to get through this well. I know it well. Class. It's like actual anger that I can't give them <laughs> law that makes better sense. Um, yeah, so in these crime lab cases, prior to Crawford, it was very common for a lab tech to run a test, say, find, all right, yes, this powder is cocaine write up an affidavit, hand that back over to the police, and then the prosecutor just introduces that affidavit as a business record, essentially, to get through that hearsay exception. Never was believed to cause a confrontation clause problem. After Crawford, we have this new line of cases, starting with Melendez-Diaz v. Massachusetts, where the court, in another Scalia-authored opinion, said, actually, in these cases, you need the lab tech to take the stand and testify, because that affidavit clearly is going to be used for prosecution, and therefore it is testimonial, and so you need the guy on the stand. And this is really not an overly formalistic requirement. There in Massachusetts itself, there was actually a major scandal at the time involving crime lab techs who were falsifying reports to gain favor with the prosecutors, taking the drugs they had in their storage, like all terrible stuff going down. That actually, it's not just an empty formality that Melendez-Diaz was insisting on. There were real accuracy concerns beyond just the testimonial issue. So that was the first step down that path. Another subsequent case, Bill Cumming v. New Mexico, held that it's got to be the actual lab tech who conducted it. You, You can't just have someone come in who also works at the lab to testify about procedures. So this was looking like a pretty hard on the prosecution doctrine developing. But then, as it did in the case of statements to law enforcement officers, the Supreme Court made a right turn, almost for pragmatic reasons, trying to curtail the reach of this series of lab tech cases. So we had what I consider to be the most confusing, impossible to reconcile confrontation clause case of all of them, and that is called Williams v. Illinois. And what happened in Williams v. Illinois was the police department was using a private lab that created DNA profiles. And so they sent a semen sample, I believe, to this private lab. The lab sent them back a detailed DNA profile of whoever had left the semen sample. Then the police department ran that through their own database of prior offenders' DNA and found a match. So the state put the police officer who had conducted the database search on the stand. He testified about how he had conducted the database search and then introduced this report produced by a private lab. In a fractured 
opinion that had no majority for either of the two justifications for the outcome. This was held to be admissible. And one for justice plurality said that, well, it's admissible because it's basically like expert evidence, right? Like this police officer is functioning like an expert, talking about how he ran the database analysis. Experts are allowed to bring in hearsay material to explain how they got to their conclusion. So it's like that. Another four justices said, no, it's admissible because the DNA profile was produced anonymously. The private lab was not actually an engine of the state. They were not deciding, yes, this is cocaine or no, this is not not cocaine or something that clearly would be inculpatory or exculpatory. They were just creating a DNA profile anonymously. They didn't know what the upshot of that was going to be. So that's where that doctrine stands. It is without even five justices at the time in agreement on the logic that would support the outcome. And now we don't know what our current lineup would do with it. So utter chaos. (laughs) Well, it's an incredible survey of the legal landscape that you've done, Aaron. And I think stepping back, it just leaves me with one overriding question. And that is, where does all this chaotic, incoherent case law leave us? In your view, Aaron, what's the legacy of Crawford? Deep and profound uncertainty, generations of frustrated law students. (laughs) I think that the way the cases have gone seems to be moving back in a direction that's going to be beneficial for the government. But I think the court just simply must resolve this. It's embarrassing at this point that these cases are so internally contradictory, even internally to individual cases contradictory. There was just a denial of cert on an Alabama case that raised a confrontation clause issue. And Justice Gorsuch dissented from the denial of cert quite spiritedly for all the reasons I just described, basically that the courts have made a mess of this and they need to sort this out. So yes, the legacy of Crawford is frustration, in my opinion. Awesome. Well, so all this, now making a normative turn, brings us finally to your proposal for reconceptualizing the Confrontation Clause, perhaps bringing some much-needed coherence to the clause. And your account actually begins with something that you mentioned earlier in the podcast, And that is the trial of Sir Walter Raleigh. So what happened with the trial of Sir Walter Raleigh? And what does that teach us perhaps about confrontation? Yes. So Raleigh's trial, he basically, he had been a favorite of Queen Elizabeth I, made her a lot of money essentially through piracy. But when James I took over after Elizabeth's death, he fell out of favor and was ultimately implicated, probably inaccurately, in a plot to assassinate James I. And so basically, in his treason trial, the primary evidence against him was the ex parte deposition of one of his friends, Baron Cobham, who had implicated him in this plot, but was not present during his actual trial. And so Raleigh gave an extremely articulate, extremely powerful speech during his trial, essentially saying, this is wrong. Bring Cobham out here and let me ask him questions. And in so doing, he pointed out, first of all, there are serious accuracy problems with having the out-of-court testimony of this person not subject to cross-examination be admitted. So he said, I mean, obviously, he's basically like the guy was questioned probably in the Tower of London. He has every reason since he himself was implicated in the plot to lie. You know, all of the things that would normally make an out-of-court statement by a self-interested person potentially less accurate. But he also, in his defense, turns to other values, uh, dignitary values, I I would call them, 
that make the case that convicting someone on this type of evidence is really an affront to their personal dignity. So a couple of the quotes, which I've I've printed out here because his language here is so powerful. He says, by the law of God, the life of man is of such price and value that no person, whatever his offenses, ought to die unless he be condemned on the testimony of two or three witnesses. So he's saying here, whatever his offenses, whether this person is guilty or innocent, their life is of such value that their condemnation should still require some kind of evidence, witnesses that can be cross-examined. And later on, he says, let my accuser come face to face and be deposed. Were the case but for a small copy hold, you would have witness or good proof to lead the jury to a verdict. And I am here for my life. A copy hold was a type of land interest, I believe a, a leasehold of some sort. But he's basically saying the law would require there to be in-person testimony if someone was suing over a leasehold on a piece of land. But he's here for his life, and he's sort of saying, my life should be of such dignitary value that the process should not be functioning in this cursory way. So that really got me thinking about the Crawford case, says it's not about accuracy, it's about whether something's testimonial. Raleigh's words made me kind of unpack that. Okay, so what what do we care about in the fact that something's testimonial? And I think Raleigh would say there's a a dignity value offended. The idea that someone can give formal testimony and not be subject to confrontation offends the dignity of the defendant who's having this evidence used against them. So Aaron, I want to drill down exactly into that point, this notion of what Sir Walter Raleigh's trial can teach us about the underlying nature of confrontation. Because if I'm hearing you correctly, you're seeing confrontation as extending beyond a focus on just ensuring accurate verdicts. That's correct? Yes, absolutely. So dignitary value. What exactly is the dignity in confronting someone testifying against you? So first of all, I turn to the psych literature a little bit on how proximity affects honesty as sort of the first question. And there appears to be some evidence in the psych literature that says proximity to someone that you're lying about makes you feel more guilty. So obviously that's possibly valuable. What we care about is accuracy. Maybe people are going to be less likely to lie if they're going to feel guilty if the person that they're lying about is right there. So that seems a little intuitive. But beyond that, what if they lie anyways? So what if their guilt doesn't do anything to change their testimony, but nonetheless, they feel it? I think that is what I would consider to be the relational right protected by the Confrontation Clause. That that defendant, if their presence increases the guilt of the person who's lying about them, perhaps that is part of the dignitary right that Raleigh's talking about. He wanted Cobham, fine, if you're going to tell the lie because you don't want to get executed yourself you're at least going to say it to my face and have to feel bad about it. The psych literature suggests that that is something that will happen, that people will be inclined to feel guilty when the person that they're lying about is there. And so maybe that's a right that should belong to the criminal defendant. Taking it back to kind of the Kantian concept of dignity, which don't worry, I'm not going to talk about Kant very much, (laughs) other than to say that he was really into dignity. And for him, A big function of it was that people and the law itself are not allowed to treat other human beings as kind of a means to an end. So if the testifying witness is kind of using the mechanism of the state as a means to the end of doing harm to this defendant, or the defendant as a means to whatever end is being served by the witnesses lying in the first place, there should be some kind of recompense for that. 
And then I would say that recompense is having to stand there and face that defendant while uttering the lie. And Aaron, adopting kind of a, a broader lens now, how does the concept of dignity that you're identifying in the Confrontation Clause, how does it perhaps align with other dignitary interests that we see elsewhere in the law? That's a great question. And there are, in general, it's worth noting that the concept of dignity as it appears in the law generally and criminal law specifically, it's a very slippery concept. There's lots of different taxonomies. People have written about all the different ways dignity is at work in the law. The paper goes into great detail about that. I'm not going to spend too much of our time talking about that here. But what I will say is that I find the Dignitary Confrontation Clause interest to be closest to other trial rights, such as the right for a defendant to appear in regular clothing as opposed to prison garb, or the right that's been recognized for a criminal defendant to represent themselves. Neither of those are explicit rights itemized in the Bill of Rights. But those are specific rights at trial that criminal defendants have been held to have on purely dignitary grounds. Prison garb, I would say, there's an accuracy reason for that having been recognized as well. Obviously, juries might be more inclined to assume someone's guilty if they kind of look like a criminal. But courts have also, the opinions entrenching this right, have turned on the idea that the defendant also has a dignitary interest to be perceived on sort of an equal footing as the other people in the courtroom. The right to self-representation, that could very well have the opposite effect on accuracy. In other words, a lay criminal defendant representing themselves, very arguable that they're more likely to do a bad job than a skilled attorney. But nonetheless, courts have recognized this just based on a, a defendant's dignitary right to control their own proceeding if they want to. So I think it is analogous to these. There's a couple of broader theories of dignity that I think all three of these could be classified as. One is the idea of intrinsic dignity, that a human being has a right to be free from interference to the greatest extent possible. So this is the concept of dignity that also undergirds certain rights like freedom of speech and so forth, and abortion rights, substantive rights like that. In courts that sort of say, no, the person's already a criminal defendant, they should have their freedom of self-realization in the area of how they're tired and on the question of whether they self-represent. I think this is that type of right that sort of gets to the defendant's intrinsic right to be free from having someone testify against them without any type of internal psychological consequence. There's also another theory of dignity called recognition dignity. And this is the concept of dignity that says human dignity often turns on an individual's relation to society. How does the system treat them? I think that's a little bit at work here, too. Just the idea that once you're already a criminal defendant, you're caught up in this inherently undignified mechanism of a criminal prosecution. It is still showing that the system assigns more intrinsic worth even to a criminal defendant by allowing them to confront the person testifying against them. So let's now turn to the implications of a dignitary confrontation clause. So first, if we return to a topic that we covered at the top of the podcast, I'm wondering how your new model might affect cases, say, that involve statements made to a police officer. Yeah, so I think that under my model, the Bryant case is clearly wrong. The Bryant case, uh, the Bryant majority over a very strenuous dissent by Scalia, the author of Crawford, said, well, we don't just care about what the out-of-court speaker's purpose in making the statement was. 
we also care about the police officer statement and so forth. Now, I think my concept of the Dignitary Confrontation Clause turns pretty heavily on the specific relationship between the defendant and the out-of-court declarant. If that out-of-court declarant has the primary purpose of giving testimony against that defendant, I don't think it's relevant whether the police had a primary purpose of preventing further violence or whatnot. The dignity interest is triggered by an an out-of-court declarant giving testimony against the defendant. So I would definitely say Brian is a wrong turn and should be replaced. One thing I will say, the Crawford case in a footnote says one exception to this whole new regime we're creating is dying declarations. Dying declarations historically, and it really doesn't provide a ton of evidence for this fact, have been treated as non-testimonial. Now, I would say, obviously, there is a very well-established hearsay dying declaration exception. I don't think the Crawford Court does a very good job in that footnote of explaining why a dying declaration, other than the fact that it's a well-established hearsay exception, should not be considered testimonial. But that caveat actually does make sense under the rule that I propose. And that's because if the out-of-court declarant is dead, then there is no interest in causing the speaker to feel guilt. They're, they're not there to be in court and therefore have the defendant have their relational right relative to them to make them give the testimony in the face of, in the, face of the defendant. So I actually think my role solves this weird footnote in Crawford and actually kind of harmonizes it and makes it make sense, even though the, the court itself didn't give us much to hang our hat on there. Well, we also talked earlier about the chaos of confrontation cases involving lab technicians. And I want to return to that context as well. How does this formulation that you've proposed, the Dignitary Confrontation Clause, how does it help change that kind of chaotic legal landscape? So I would say one of the two theories of Williams, the the theory that said, well, the out-of-court lab report can come in as long as it's sort of being introduced obliquely through an expert on the stand testifying about it. I think that that theory is definitely wrong under my analysis. That's basically if what we're concerned about is the defendant's right to sort of relationally hold that speaker accountable by facing them in court, having that come in through another witness just offends that right entirely. It's still sneaking it in and it's that not be an acceptable exception to the confrontation clause. The other theory of Williams, which if you'll recall, was that, well, it the original lab report was written anonymously and on the facts of that particular case, even though they knew it was going to be used for a criminal prosecution, they didn't really know what the DNA profile they were creating was going to do one way or the other. It wasn't like saying, oh, this is definitely cocaine, which means whoever you have arrested is definitely going to jail. It's more just here's a DNA profile. I would say that theory works moderately better under the dignitary conception, simply because it is somewhat less accusatory, I would say. But nonetheless, any witness is covered by the confrontation clause, meaning it doesn't matter. The confrontation clause does not have exceptions for certain types of testimony. So therefore, I, I don't think that theory of Williams works either. Now, I will say that one way that states have been using to get around all of this lab tech mess is the introduction of what are called notice and demand statutes. And that basically creates a process through which a defendant can invoke their right to confrontation 
um, but it can also be waived. I think that process probably works. I mean, with the caveat that anytime we have waivable constitutional rights, that opens a whole can of worms about whether it's a real choice, given the stakes of the criminal justice system and the, the scarcity of real trials. And so that that's sort of its own kettle of fish. But I, I think to the extent that constitutional rights are waivable at all, I think that that probably works the best because it does, at least in theory, on paper, the defendant still owns the right and can waive it like they can waive most other constitutional rights. So I think that's the best way around this. But again, with that caveat that anytime rights are waivable with the stakes, with the balance of power in our justice system being what it is, it's unclear whether that's ever a real choice for defendants. Well, Aaron, this has been an amazing podcast. It's an incredible look at the Confrontation Clause. And I only have one last question for you. And that's just what is next for the literature? Is there another type of paper that could shed additional insight on this issue? Well, first of all, there's, to me, the mystery of this Crawford footnote on the dying declaration exception. It's not something I looked closely at when I first started researching the paper. It wasn't until I got to the end that I was like, oh, hey, my idea solves this and makes it make sense. I would like me or someone else to dig deeper into the history about sort of how that dying declaration exception would be considered non-testimonial beyond it just being a hearsay exception. That's more of just kind of a curiosity. I think court should adopt my rule and then we don't even have to worry about it. But I would be interested in that. And then beyond that, I would really like more psych literature on the benefits of confrontation psychologically for defendants. When we talk about dignitary interests, obviously we're sort of talking almost objectively about dignitary interests. Just one should have the right to have this type of relational effect on the witness and that sort of thing. But I would be very curious if there is actually, as I kind of intuitively suspect there is, an actual therapeutic value to confrontation. I don't think that's necessary for the dignitary argument to prevail, but it would certainly back it up and I would I would like to see that. But as usual, there's always site questions in law that I need other people with different skill sets for me to answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been such a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Alex, it was my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me and sorry for putting people to sleep with the doctrinal summary at the start. <laughs> <laughs> not at all, not at all. Thanks so much. To my mind, I think one of the most exciting aspects of Aaron's paper is the fact that Confrontation Clause jurisprudence, it might be in a state of flux right now. Of course, it's almost been 20 years since that seminal case, Crawford v. Washington, that Aaron discussed today and that we're all familiar with from teaching evidence law. It's been 20 years since that case was decided, and only one member of the Crawford v. Washington majority, namely Justice Thomas, is still on the court. And in the key cases that we have on the Confrontation Clause since Crawford v. Washington, we see unorthodox, kind of strange allegiances when it comes to opinions regarding confrontation jurisprudence. Now, what do I mean by that? Take a look at Michigan v. Bryant. In Michigan v. Bryant, we have a majority opinion authored by Justice Sotomayor, but joined by Justice Alito, joined by Justice Thomas, as well as the Chief, Chief Justice Roberts. At the same time, in Michigan v. Bryant, we have a dissent from Justice Scalia and a dissent from Justice Ginsburg. And so what we see, therefore, is that Confrontation Clause jurisprudence perhaps transcends the typical ideological divisions that typifies the court in other areas or other subject matters. Now, you take that kind of 
ideological uncertainty, the uncertainty that we have about how individual justices will approach the Confrontation Clause, and you add to it the fact that the court has turned over significantly since the last major Confrontation Clause decision. Of course, we have at least four new justices since Williams v. Illinois was decided, namely Justices Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, Barrett, and Jackson. And what I think all of this leaves us with is a recognition that the future of Confrontation Clause jurisprudence in the United States, it's somewhat uncertain. We might have many justices in play for revisiting Crawford v. Washington or minimally revisiting the application of the Confrontation Clause right at trial. And given that uncertainty, I think it's incumbent upon us all as evidence scholars to think seriously about reforming Confrontation Clause jurisprudence and thinking about the best path forward for the confrontation right. Of course, Aaron's paper provides a fantastic example of how scholarship can provide insight amid this uncertainty. And I hope you enjoyed our conversation about a dignitary confrontation clause today. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program and the University of Arkansas School of Law. The producer is Ed Chang, and the production editor is Madeline DiPietro. Additional production assistance is provided by Kira Hammond, and background music is provided by Kirsten Castle-Greer, Felix Wong, and Alex Crew. I'm your host, Alex Nunn, and I hope you will join us again next time when we take on another work in the world of evidence and proof.